This episode of That Song from That Movie is coming up after this. You know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like more trouble than it's worth. There's so much information flying around, it's almost impossible to get anything of value out of it all. But that's what Assorted Goods is all about. Every episode, your host, Dan, me, takes the time to break down and dive into a collection of news stories and topics, big or small, past or present. It's a podcaster's journey to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. So stop by, kick back, relax, and join me in my efforts to figure out some of the craziness, and maybe have a couple laughs along the way. Find Assorted Goods wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you there. This is the sixth James Bond-themed intro I've recorded for this podcast, and to be honest, I'm completely running out of puns, so this is all you're getting on today's episode of that song from that movie. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. Welcome back. This is part two of our look at the Bond songs of the 1980s. If you missed last week's episode, go back and listen to it now, because it's not going to make any sense, and Ben's going to jump into the next one right now. Wait, you mean now? You mean now? <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Moving on to the fourth James Bond film from the 1980s, The Living Daylights. Released in 1987, this is the 15th Eon Bond production and the first to feature the fourth James Bond, Timothy Dalton. John Glenn's back in the director's seat as he navigates us through KGB assassinations, shady American arms dealers, and a pair of Russian assassins. <laughs> just feels like they've just picked like the things that are in most Bond films. I like how they picked a pair there as well. A pair of it's like it's like it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's just, just so one. suggestive, just straight away. Just let's just up to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did not know this, but Pierce Brosnan originally got the role at this point. As James Bond. Really? Yeah, apparently. that I was reading about it. I did not know. So various people auditioned, including Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and another person who was very sought after, Sam Neill, the Australian. Oh, that's... It's interesting, because Sam Neill and Pierce Brosnan in my head have the same voice. Yeah. <laughs> I think Sam Neill would have been a pretty good Bond. Is that the guy from Jurassic Park? Yes. And Sam Neill's Merlin. <laughs> Do you know who the, uh, the production team... I think it was MGM. Do you know who they wanted? Mel Gibson. <laughs> Interesting. I like it. <laughs> that would, like yeah, it. yeah. You <laughs> would have got on with John Barry. <laughs> yeah, very much so. But apparently, Pierce Brosnan, because there was a lot of sort of publicity going on, he was currently in a TV show called Remington Steel. Yes. Um, and the offer, he was, um, his contract was extended with Remington Steel, so the offer was pulled from Bond and given to Dalton in a three-movie deal which he famously only did two of. I think it's kind of spawned a bit of a different Bond, the sort of reluctant hero Bond. These these ones are an actually a bit more gritty. You know, bye-bye, Roger Moore, <laughs> sorry. Are you saying For All Your Eyes Only wasn't gritty? <laughs> I mean, compared to this, <laughs> this is the, uh, the the magnum compared to the chalk eyes that is For Your Eyes Only. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the song from the film The Living Daylights was The Living Daylights by Norwegian pop band Aha! I have to say, because I'm in Norfolk. I mean, what do people think of this song? What song? It's so forgettable. I've already forgotten what the sentence is about. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll have you know, you're talking about the second biggest AHA song right now. Is it, is that actually true? Is it the second most successful AHA song? Apparently, they often cited it as this, like their second most famous song. I also use the word forgettable in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I did come around to it after a few plays, to be fair. But it, to me, it just it just mostly reminded me of the superior song "Diamond Lights" by Glenn Hoddle and Chris Wood, <laughs> which I think which I think maybe should have actually been the theme song. And one of them should have been Bond. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> Fair. I mean, this I feel this song is definitely one of those. There's so many buttons pressed on the synth keyboard. There's all sorts of little things flying about. But yeah, it did pretty well, and I think they wanted to return to. Like after the success of Duran Duran with A View to a Kill, they wanted something else that, and Aha, I think, had just released their first album, so they were quite popular. You know, Take On Me was massive. Yeah. Got to number five in the UK charts, so, you know, pretty good. Mm. But there's a sort of a, a sorrow in my voice when I talk about this film. No. Because. No. no. Don't say it. It's, Don't say it, it. It was bound to happen, guys. We, we knew it was going to come. So the song and the soundtrack was the last to involve the work <laughs> of the legendary John Barry. It's not fair. It's not fair. I actually didn't know it was gonna, that that was going to happen. It was I going to end. It would go on forever. <laughs> yep. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll introduce why he wasn't in the next one, and it reasons? wasn't it wasn't tax <laughs> reasons. He didn't get the triple threat, the Shirley Bassey of tax reasons. So how will we <laughs> fluff up our runtime in the future without these John Barry anecdotes? I will remember you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the arms of an angel. Yes, so the song was written by John Barry and I don't even know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to butcher this. Paul Wachter, or Wachter, who is the guitarist from AHA. So I, I guess a Norwegian name. Apologies to our Norwegian contingent listeners. Of which there are many. Yes. Unsurprisingly to us all, Aha and John Barry did not collaborate well. They were not <laughs> friends. Resulted in two versions of the song. I hope there's a good one. Guess whose version made it to film? John Barry's. Of course. Barry's. Of course. <laughs> like there was even the conversation. <laughs> Aha released it on their album Stay On These Roads, so their version went to their album. Uh, but in an interview, the guitarist Paul Wachter said... He was quite a big fan of the John Barry version. They just said, they, yeah, they had a few disagreements. You can kind of understand, and I can imagine John Barry's reaction to this. So he said that, aha, when they were they were quite efficient. So when, when it was like to write a song, I think they were touring at the time and didn't want to interrupt touring to make the song. So they just quickly did it. John Barry was also quite annoyed that they didn't want to go to the premiere. But they said, he said in an interview, when we got the John Barry version, we felt there was a wrong note in the string arrangements, so we fixed it. But he didn't like that. (laughs) Not one bit. I can imagine that's quite annoying if you send someone this, you know, this piece of work, this piece of music, the legendary John Barry, and they they return it back with the red marker through it. That ain't going to sit right with John. It ain't. It ain't. It ain't. This was the first film that had a different song on the title and ending cards. So they actually started to add, I think, a few more pop songs. If There Was a Man by Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders, which is a song in the credits. Apparently it was originally picked for the theme, but again, they thought AHA was doing so well in the charts at the time, they wanted a more successful artist. So yeah, they went with them. And it has not lasted that long in the memory. It's okay. I think it's quite synonymous of the majority of these 80s Bond songs. Definitely forgettable. 
I think like, I had to. The reason why I had to listen to it multiple times was because I kept forgetting how it went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I was trying to sing it in my head, and I just couldn't. There was like a little like funky like synth bass riff right at the beginning, which I quite enjoyed. And actually, my favorite thing about this song was in the title credits. There's like a really cool like syncopated gunshot. Where oh, it yes. like times yeah. it with the music a few times. Good one. That's the uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I liked about it, really. I think it was this one where they returned to projecting the camera onto women's bodies. Yes, <laughs> they've it, returned it, to this. There was a lot of risque. There was a lot of risque uh, boobage in this one. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> For lack of a better word, as New York Times would refer to it. <laughs> yeah, they probably loved this one. Yeah, they probably did. You ain't gonna get away with that, New York Times. We'll always remember. But yes. Not a very memorable Bond song. Do you get the impression that when they wrote this song, they realised right at the end that needed to make them say The Living Daylights and just sort of shoved it into yes, the it chorus? Because yeah. it sounds like it's the backing vocals, but it's not supposed to be. And it takes an age to get to it as well, doesn't <laughs> it? Really it really does. It really does. Because I know when I've been reading about other ones, there's been conversations about when the name of the film was mentioned so that they could run it in line with the credits so that it would say it at the same time. Yeah, Thunderball was a big yeah, version of that. For Your Eyes Only, was the, it was similar. Like they Originally, it was only the last line of the song, and they moved it so that it featured more often in the, in the chorus, so they rewrote it so that they could do it that way. So it seems weird that with this one, it takes like t- two minutes to get to the style. Very weird. Yeah, it's just a bit flat. And I wouldn't say that of the lead singer of AHA, because he can reach those notes. Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of sort of pitch change, isn't there, throughout the song, but I, th- I felt like there could have been more vocal gymnastics going on, based <laughs> yes. on what we know about Not art. just the silhouette v- gymnastics that's going on, because there's also <laughs> a lot of those. <laughs> okay, so if there's one thing that I don't often associate with the 80s, it is efficiency. So we had a film in 81, a film in 83, 85, 87. Now in 1989, right at the end, we have License to Kill. I think one of the best Bond films. James Bond ironically relinquishes his license to kill, disobeys orders, and goes on a revenge mission when his friend's wife is killed by a drug baron. It's a bit different. I think this seems a bit more fitting with what I'd expect of the Daniel Craig films. Mm, it does definitely does. Yes, it sounds like Quantum of Solace, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's not that's not a comparison you really want to make. But is it is it actually in is it in Casino Royale where I feel like maybe there's a question about revoking his license to kill in that as well. No, but it being granted, he hasn't got it at the beginning of that. Oh, so he actually gets granted it at the beginning yeah. of the film. Yeah. yeah, I think it's quite popular, that motif in the Daniel Craig films, that he's kind of a renegade. And I, was it in Skyfall where he basically fail, fails all the tests and they still put him out in the field, which is risky. Whereas I feel like with Roger Moore, you're just like, oh, Roger, <laughs> you silly <laughs> goose. And just let him go and frolic and play and somehow he saves the world. But these ones are like, oh, for for God's sake, Bond, sort it out. Dalton is kind of like your military hero kind of Bond, isn't he? You feel yeah. like he's like guns, ho type. Yes, your action man Bond. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it was. And I think Timothy Dalton, I think he wanted it to be more like the Ian Fleming novels, like the Bond in those, rather than this sort of camp Bond that was Roger Moore. <laughs> so yeah, License to Kill is famously the first Bond film in a series not to use a title from an Ian Fleming story. John Glenn was back. I don't know if he ever left. Whoa, whoa, we can't just go past that. What is it from? Is it just made up? Uh, I think it was just made up, yeah. I, I didn't right. see it anywhere. Just, just referencing yes. his license. Yeah. And as we alluded to before, John Barry is no longer with us. He's not dead. He's just <laughs> no longer with us. Because he was undergoing throat surgery. Oh. Likely in an exotic location. <laughs> Paul should just point out that he has died now. You, you mean at the time. He, he is died. not. Yes, he is not. No. 
not this time. He's no longer we'll give him now. his true eulogy when it comes, but not right now. Okay. The soundtrack was conducted by Michael Kamen. So Michael Kamen, previous to this film, had done soundtracks such as Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Again, very action-heavy films. Mm. And afterwards, he went on to do such films as Die Hard 2 and <laughs> Die Hard Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> And Lethal Weapon 3 and Lethal Weapon. He has also done other films. He's quite a prominent composer. I think he did like the X Men films. And you, you go through, he's done a lot. Right. He has some islands named after him, too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's probably where John Barry was getting his surgery. <laughs> Michael Islands. <laughs> so, yes, originally Eric Clapton and Vic Flick. Now, that's a name, isn't it? Vic Flick. Vic Flick. Have you heard of that before? No. Well, Vic Flick was the original Bond theme guitarist from Doctor oh. Who did the theme, oh. you know, the theme. Uh, so they were originally approached to do the theme, to write it, to sing it. Right. <laughs> I was hoping someone was going to do it. However, the song License to Kill was eventually given to the Empress of Soul, as she is so titled Gladys Knight of Gladys Knight and the Pips, and was written by three people I have never heard of, uh, of which I will butcher some of these names. Narada Michael Walden, Jeffrey Cohen, and the famous Walter... Afanasiev? Afanasiev. <laughs> so, what do people think of this song? It's it's pretty nice. <laughs> it's definitely, like, one of the best 80s ones. I don't think there's much argument in that. But, now, well, so are you going to argue with that? <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, do you think that's because of the nostalgia factor? Because it uses the horn from Goldfinger? Yes, well, that's one of, one of the things I'm going to say, referring back to my notes, I've just got... Boom. <laughs> with well, how have you written it? <laughs> I've written it be like triple U. Do you write Inception sound twice? <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe it, isn't it? It really harkens back to those original 60s ones rather than sort of trying to be contemporary like the other 80s ones and failing in most instances, bar one possibly. So yeah, maybe that's why I like this one. But I think it's definitely up there with the best ones of the 80s. Is that really a feat? Yes. No, and no. <laughs> I think as well, though, it doesn't just like. I suppose maybe, like you say, if this one harkens back to the old ones, because I was going to say that this one felt reminiscent of ones that followed it, like Golden Eye or World Is Not Enough, sort of the late 90s, noughties ones. But I guess that's maybe because they're also trying to uh, echo back to those ones from the 60s as well. So it seems like a lot of the time, eventually a song has to do that <laughs> because they've got it wrong so many times. <laughs> yes, yeah. So if A View to a Kill is at the top of the Eiffel Tower and Rita Coolidge is in the Parisian underground. I'd say she's probably not even in Paris. Where <laughs> she might not be. She's in Cali. <laughs> where does this where does this song fit? Is it nearer the top or is it just better than that sort of pool? This feels like a big setup for your top five. No, <laughs> it's not, it really is not. <laughs> is it Eiffel Tower based? <laughs> I was actually that was an actual actual question. <laughs> the five best shops in the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower gift shop. <laughs> That's number one. Hey, my <laughs> my top five to come is an official is an official list. Yeah, it's not ridiculous. of getting laughed at by everyone. I'd I'd say Ben to answer your question that it's probably somewhere. If if if, if yeah, it depends on what we mean by the top of the Eiffel Tower. Do we mean the top like tier, or do we mean like the actual? Oh, no, point? no, it's like at the point. <laughs> so like I say, so if you two kills, kills the point. The point she, Rita Coolidge is Callie. 
Yeah, which is Gallant. Sheena Easton kind of is sort of, sort of like the uh, Champs Elysees. Yeah, so it's um, oh, it's getting closer. You can actually see the top. Yeah, you can see that top, but we're not we're not we're not near that close to it. I would say that this is it's definitely somewhere on the tower. Okay, so like ticket collection, that sort of thing, or like cafe it's, first floor. It's the glass floor bit of the first yeah. tier. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Gladys Knight would take that as well because I don't think she'd climb too high anymore. I don't know if she's alive. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, this was also a top ten single in the UK, so it did well, and I think a part of that must be the nostalgia factor. Not many facts about this song, I must say. Scouring the internet, it seems to be very middle of the road. The only fact I have, which is a pretty good fact, is that it is officially the longest Bond theme at 5 minutes and 13 seconds. It is very long. I listened to it in the car, and I was thinking at one point, how is this still going? (laughs) But one of the things I think is quite a strength of this song is repetition. So it actually makes sense that it's 5 minutes long. Yep. Like how many times do you hear "License to Kill" and specifically "To Kill"? <laughs> you just <laughs> yeah. hear it over and over again in the song, and I never get bored of it. <laughs> no, no, and yeah, I think it's a good song. It's just compared to the '80s stuff, it makes it much easier to yeah. hold it up. I think overall, when I read the title of the film, I was like, I don't know that one straight off the top of my head, which yeah. maybe says a lot about it. But I don't yeah. know if that's just because the Dalton films kind of do get forgotten a bit. I yeah, I think that's a shame, that's... though, because I think they are better, um, yeah. especially compared to the Roger Moore ones. I think the Roger Moore ones are very watchable. You can just stick them on in the background. Yeah, they, they were just throwing in all sorts of things going on, whereas I think they tried to ground the Dalton ones a bit more before Brosnan went full action hero. <laughs> I think this song specifically has one thing about it that none of the other Bond songs really quite have, and that is when you do the song at karaoke... You actually want to be the backing vocals. <laughs> yeah, I go with that. I don't think any other Bond song has that, unless you can correct me. Uh... I mean, nobody wants to be singing that terrible Sam Smith song. <laughs> no. Yeah, you, you want to be the backing vocals as in not standing up and singing at all. <laughs> no one wants to touch that. <sighs> it just annoys me, that song. Well, I'll talk, we'll talk about that song in a, in, when it comes around, but my God. Good God, Sam. Which does bring me quite nicely into my top five. Let's do it. Now, I've slightly cheated, and I've done a top six. But it can still be a top five. With honourable mention. It's six because of the six Bonds. All right, okay. Now, this is a factual list. And by factual, I'm really using that very loosely, because when I looked (laughs) this up, in many places, there was a lot of differing facts about this. So, I have stuck with one source, and no arguments. Thank you very much. So... Because of the Timothy Dalton films, and I was quite a big fan, and I was reading up them, and they, they seemed a bit more gritty, a bit more real, and a bit more sort of darker. But I wondered, Timothy, are you killing more people? Oh. So I wanted to know, Ooh. which James Bond, on average, because it's unfair to think of them as just for their films, which James Bond, on average, actually proven kills the most people? So I ask you, gentlemen, top six, put them in order. Ooh. So is this... Killed on screen, or are we yeah, so it's like proven. It's like... it's like proven. So if they blow up a warehouse, you don't know how many people are in there, unless they go. Right, the oh my gosh, you killed eighteen people! You specifically killed eighteen people, James Bond. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Damn, Damn, I wish it was twenty. I can't believe we have to organize eighteen funerals. <laughs> That's a good name for a Bond film. Eighteen, 18 funerals. funerals. <laughs> go on, then, guys. 
Oh god, this is really hard, actually. Yeah, and it, and it's average. Let's go the it? let's go the extremes first. Who do you think's killed the most? Who do you think's killed the least? I was thinking Brosnan might kill the most, but I was thinking Moore's killed the most. More. I was thinking more maybe the least though. Though that's the thing. Although actually, no, probably George Lazenby will be least because even if it's average, average on average. Yeah, but like, so his I, average could be really high compared. No, no, there's no it could be, dragging it down. It could be ten. <laughs> That's true, actually. There's no romantic comedy <laughs> pulling him down. <laughs> I mean, and does uh, Bond's wife count in that one? <laughs> does, does he kill her? Oh, wait, does it have to be specifically Bond killer? Yes, Bond, yeah, kills. Bond, no, kills, Bond kills. No, Bond kills. Yeah, Bond I thought you meant, kills. like, just deaths in Bond. No, films. no, no, no. Uh, killed by Bond. Because right. I, think, I think Brosnan maybe goes, like, does kill quite a few. That's, that was my thought. But then you said, with you saying Timothy Dalton maybe uh, being the more military man, maybe he does as well. I, w- I would say that more would be the low- more on Lazenby maybe would be the lowest, but that's okay. my thought. Maybe Craig Daniel Craig seems to kill a lot, doesn't he? Or does he? He seems to beat up a lot of people. He seems to beat up a lot of people. I don't know necessarily yeah, kills a lot of death. people. Yeah, think yeah. Casino Royale. How many people does he actually kill? Yeah, I'm thinking Craig's going to be quite low. Maybe maybe yeah. maybe Sean Connery's quite high. Maybe they maybe they up the deaths at the beginning. But I- I'm sticking with Brosnan because I think the '90s was a big time for deaths on TV and film. So Dietrich, give me run me through. Quickly off your head, I know you're under pressure, but we're good doing it this way. Top six. Okay, I'll go Craig at the bottom. Yep. Ooh. Now, but I'm, I'm now Alex. You've sort of changed my opinion here. I'll go Connery, Dalton, Lazenby, Moore, and then so Brosnan at the top. The most. And Brosnan, Brosnan, where have you got Brosnan? Uh, I him second. No, that's him third, but only because I think the Lazenby single film factor is going to mess up the averages. Zero. None right. None right. Surprise. So, so I'm, I, I think that Lazenby will be bottom, as in okay. killed least. Okay. Yep. Um, and I think it's going to then be Daniel Craig, because so, he obviously can't be last because he got that wrong. Then it's going to be Roger oh, yeah. Moore. You've got then, a bit of an advantage here. Then Sean Connery, then, then uh, Piers Brosnan. Also zero. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he has got three, I think, Alex. Ooh. Because Piers Brosnan is the most. Yeah. On average, 27 kills. Per film. 27 kills on average, yes. Just per film, yeah. It's quite, a high, it's quite, a, high, it's quite a high batting average. I did feel like, though, there's a lot of death in his films. Like, he does yes, seem to be killing is. people constantly. Don't you remember the start of Die Another Day when he's in the, uh, he's on the, the like, that tank that, that's floating on the, on the ground? Yeah, that was my thought process. He's always driving a tank. <laughs> <laughs> but how many of those are confirmed kills? And how many of those are just people flying in the air? Like superhero landing and then coming back for Bond. Take it up film. with Time Magazine, D. Okay. <laughs> I will. No more interruptions. Brosnan first, 27. Second, Roger Moore with 16.6. Third, Daniel Craig with 15.3. Fourth, Connery with 12.5. Fifth, Dalton with 10. And last, Lazenby, Lazenby. with 5. A mediocre 5. Come on, Lazenby. I feel vindicated that I got the top and bottom correct. Yep. I'm looking at the Bond kill count, and I think it's been... Re- <laughs> there's, there's a big skew here. Apparently, Roger Moore kills 59 people in Octopussy. <laughs> uh, but he only kills one in The Man with the Golden Gun. Is that Scaramanga? Uh, it must be Clay. It's been a long time I've seen it. Uh, and he kills most people in Bond films by blowing them up. Uh, and has killed 122 people mid-air. <laughs> <laughs> Back to you, Dietrich. I love that. That's a great fact. Killed 120 <laughs> mid-air. I don't know if that's his mid-air, or if the villain's mid-air. <laughs> oh, I assume the person he was shooting at. Well, the I image next both. to it, the image next to it is him on skis flying, so... 
Yeah, which I think is is that a view to a kill? Many films, that's where he's also there's one of the Pierce Brosnan ones where he's in skis. Anyway, back to you, Dean. Thank you very much, Ben. So now it's time to move on to the sort of ultimate question of best and worst. We generally do best first, and now is no time to change that. <laughs> Alex, what is the best James Bond song of the 1980s? <laughs> I don't think there's going to be any surprises here. That we're, I'm guessing we're all going to save you to a kill. It's the best one. I think License to Kill is decent, but I, what I like about View to a Kill is that it's kind of very much his own Bond song. I feel like it's not taking much from other songs that have come before it. It's kind of just, but probably because of the story you described, where they just threw stuff at it and, and saw what happened. <laughs> but it just, I just, it just works, and it's just like a cool song. And I like that it's it's more up tempo, but it's not it's not so eighties like say like For Your Eyes Only is where it's a bit stripped back. It's it's kind of all guns blazing. I think View to a Kill is helped by it just being, it just sounding like a Duran Duran song. And I think just slowing the tempo down a little little bit works. And yeah, it's easy. And maybe, maybe it helped them being so drunk that they were just like, oh crap, and just did what they normally do. And didn't try to be fancy or anything. And yes, it is miles better than everything else in the 80s. Not just in the film, just in the 80s in general as a period. I think I think actually what you said there, Ben, is quite funny as well, because I think the only thing that really makes this a Bond song is the, the occasional throwing of a yeah. which it reminds me of like E17 and the uh, <laughs> Stay Now with the bell, Christmas bells in the background. It's like they've just done the normal song with the Christmas bells in the background, and that's what this feels like. Made them a career. Yeah, it's a clean sweep. You've got to go for a view to a kill. I think you are right in saying that the reason why this is the best song, maybe similar to Live and Let Die, is where it just works as a song in its own right. And it also has elements that make it a Bond song. Mash that all together and you've got yourself a smash hit sort of thing. Maybe we were in the fort. That's the formula. You're listening, Sam Smith. <laughs> this is what you should have done, Sam Smith. You should have just let Conchita sing it. <laughs> Would have been so much better. Although that was actually the Adele one. but <laughs> Adele, It doesn't matter. They should have got should have got Conchita for the next one. I think not only is a Views for Killer worthy winner, it's also nice to sign off with a John Barry win. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure a post-hummus... Uh, award from that song from that movie the, for the best James Bond song of the 1980s it's just what his family want so this one's for you guys <laughs> so now it's time to move on to the one that has a few more contenders with the worst song so Ben what is the worst James Bond song of the 1980s yeah I feel I feel quite bad uh, on Rita Coolidge saying she's over in Calais because I think actually listening to them back I think Sheena Easton's is worse <laughs> <laughs> Because at least I can, I know I can sing the song from Octopussy. So, yeah, I'd actually put Sheena down at the bottom. She's going south. She's going south. I like to think that your karaoke song is all time high. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could hit those notes. I was thinking of probably going to be one of the first two, but actually, I don't know if it's just because they were my choices to listen to them more. But I've kind of grown fond of them over the past week. (laughs) So, think actually, the one I'm going to put as the worst is A Living Daylights because. I think it should have probably been better. And it, I, feel, I feel like coming off the back of a view to a kill, they should realise that what they should really do is their own thing and just put a few James Bond sounds in the background. They probably would have made a much better song. So yeah, I think for the fact that it should have been better, The Living, Day, the Living Daylights. And, and it's not as good as Diamond Lights, as I said, which probably should have been in its place as the James Bond theme. And has the word lights in it already. I'm torn on this one, because The Living Daylights is forgettable, but for your eyes only, and all-time high, are not good. 
But what is it? Is that a better thing? Is it better to be bad than yes, like and be memorable than be forgettable but average? That that to me is the that's the question. Conundrum. That's the conundrum. <laughs> I'm going living daylights. Good I'm going to go in living daylights just because, as he said, almost you almost have to rate on a curve because it should have been better with aha and following the formula being set by Duran Duran. I guess suppose with the first two, with your eyes only an all-time high, and especially off the back of Moonraker not being well-received, they were still trying to find a new formula. They were still, still experimenting to an extent in the same <laughs> I like area. the idea of those two songs being described as experimental. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, can you imagine Moonraker with a saxophone? I don't think you can. <laughs> I th- just for that sax note, that's why I couldn't possibly pick Sheena. Because just that sax tone, it's just... I, 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 that song is going around in, in my head. It's in Rita's song. It's in. Oh, is it? Re, is it? Re, oh, Rita's is all with the sax. <laughs> well, if, if this isn't telling, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was. Like, oh no, it's not that one with the sax. That's the one with the pulsing, like uh, eight is uh, the, the heartbeat. Heartbeat. Yeah. Sorry. Either or. They're both great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not. That's why they're in this discussion for the worst song of the nineteen eighties. Yeah. So I guess on a two to two to one, that's Living Daylights in air quotation winning that award. <laughs> Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. the award is in the post. Oh, and there's that ding to end the show. That's a sad sound, I know. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us uh, on another episode. If you want to share this on the Sheena Easton subreddit, go for it. I'm sure it's, it'll be well received. <laughs> subreddit. So, I like this running, running joke. Don't take this away from me, Ben. <laughs> if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us with our handle being what, Alex? T-S-F-T-M-Pod. It's okay. Yeah, that was, that was bad. <laughs> it's because I, I read it, I said it earlier, I had it in my notes. Not for that reason, but... <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> That's golden notes. Right, so let's do some goodbyes. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Uh, one one of these times, I'm going to have to do it where I do end it like a QI episode and end it with like a really odd quote that doesn't fit. <laughs> no, I've got one of those. All right, so we're not doing any bye at the end of this. It's just going to end as Ben says his thing. Ready? <laughs> okay, so Alex, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, I thought you were going to say your thing. <laughs> oh, I must still say my thing. Sorry, I thought you were having yeah. on to. Uh, as Rhea Coolidge once famously sang, I'm in so strong and so deep. And to end the show, it's goodbye from Ben. The foundation of morality is to have done once and for all with lying. a quote by John Barry, author of The Great Influenza. Not the actual John Barry, but I googled John Barry quotes and that's what came up. <laughs> right, there you go. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> what, what a strange way to end it. <laughs>